welcome to the I Am A Health Visitor podcast. My name's Amy. And I'm Jenny. Hello everyone. Hope you're all well. Um, so we're we're going to doing... do a clinical one, aren't we? I was going to... took the words right out of my mouth. There, oh really? Amy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like what I was about to say, I could call Jinx, but I won't because that would make a very boring uh, 20 minutes or so waiting for you to be able to speak again. <laughs> so it's one of those things, I don't feel like I come across infantile spasms much in practice as a health visitor, but mm-hmm. as a paediatric nurse and in children's A&E, mm-hmm. I definitely remember seeing children coming in, um, yeah. experiencing these, and they're, they're, they're quite a scary spasms, thing yeah. as a parent, and even as a nurse to... Oh, observe, aren't they? Absolutely. They're very serious. I mean, it's um, it's one of those things I think that can appear and can be easily dismissed almost for a number of reasons. Yes. It presents quite similarly to a lot of very um, normal kind of benign yes. childhood problems. Um, so it can be easily misdiagnosed, um, but actually is is very very important to get right and to get right quickly in terms yeah. of outcomes to the child it does have a very very high morbidity rate um, and very very serious consequences for the child and um, yeah. long lasting lifelong consequences potentially um so it is a very serious um condition yeah um, which is why we thought it would be an important one for health visitors to be mindful of really to definitely of. definitely because i think it might be that thing where we may not be at the point of diagnosis we might and I mean obviously we no, don't no, diagnose no. but we might not mm. even be able to see the episodes but it's that mm. thing of if we are faced with parents coming into clinic or contacting mm. us on duty line wondering what mm. next steps to take then mm. you know we can hopefully give a bit of a framework to that yeah no I think you're right I think um it is very much the type of thing that parents present with in clinic um and sort of say I've noticed this it's it's probably nothing yeah. You know, what do you think? And perhaps show you a video of yeah. it or something. And it's at that point, really, that um, as a health visitor, you have to have this perhaps in the back of your mind, not necessarily to share with the parent um, at this stage, but to have in the back of your mind as a possibility to help guide your decision-making in terms of what to then do with that parent and child. Do you refer them on? You know, yeah. where do you send them? And um, if you have any question in your mind about where to send about whether infantile spasms might be at the root of the behaviour that the parent's describing, um, it's straight to A&E, um, yeah. the nearest large children's A&E um, that you have available. Um, yeah. If you've got a large children's A&E close to you, but certainly the nearest A&E, because um, they need an EU. I was going to say, quickly. even if it's just the nearest A&E, it's, it's getting them in the system quickly, isn't it? it yeah, I mean, I think... I would be a bit concerned. I know when I was in A&E, we would sometimes have children coming from quite a long way out of area because of okay. specialisms that were in the hospital that I worked in. And it was always a bit of a concern that they travelled so far to seek help when actually their local regional A&E can still see them and refer them in as quickly as they would be referred into the specialist team visiting okay. the actual hospital. So I think it's really that thing where you you want to go to your you know if it's a case of going to A and E you go to your local A and E 
they can then mm-hmm. refer in and manage and sort of refer into specialists as and if needed. Well, yeah, and I think there's perhaps two kind of conflicting agendas going on, isn't there, almost? Because I can totally see that, like, with your background as an A&E nurse and obviously with um that hat on and our A&E hats on, um, I can totally appreciate what you're saying. That actually, it completely undermines the whole system if people are driving for miles. And also, parents don't necessarily know what this actually is in advance of attending yeah. the A&E. And it might be something that needs very urgent care. You know, the whole exactly. concept of an A&E is it should be local and very quick. Yeah. I think um, perhaps what they were suggesting is if that if you have... So say, you know, you lived in London, for example, and you have, like, I can think of... Um, caseloads I've worked before where we have two hospitals that are very close to each other one of which is a major A&E with a children's specialist team and the other of which is a much smaller A&E perhaps without a paediatric specialist A&E um if you're ha- if you're in that position that lucky position to have that option um it's saying that you want a paediatric neurology review or an epilepsy specialist review as quickly as possible yeah. if there is any suspicion of IS um just yeah, purely because it can be quite difficult to pick up. I I just feel that with my experience of working in a a A and E in a hospital that had lots of specialist services, we often ended up dealing with very disappointed, frustrated parents who thought they would get that quicker by coming directly to us, and mm-hmm. they weren't. They were still sure. having to wait for that callback and things. So, mm-hmm. I I worry that that sort of advice gives an expectation with it that the yeah, A&E department then right says we yeah you're here but you need to come back another mm. time for this or you need your GP to refer you into this mm. or you know it doesn't automatically mean that the gates are open otherwise we would end up having um I mean you know if you think about Great Ormond Street doesn't have an A&E you know it's that thing where you get referred into there from your local hospital oh, yeah, sure. and actually even then no, it's your local course. hospital that does the bulk of the care and support with that family (laughs) yeah no absolutely I think I suppose maybe the reason this is being raised um and I completely appreciate what you're saying and obviously as a health visitor you're going to send people to the local A&E that's closest to you anyway um I guess what it raises is that this is still fairly not known about even amongst um medical professionals you know and this is certainly not something I came across this in my nursing training actually and then also as a health visitor I've come across it before um but it is very rare to come across and I think that's quite unusual when yeah speaking to other health visitors lots of people have never heard of it and and never come across it certainly never seen it in practice so I think it is quite normal for you know GPs even some pediatricians or medical professionals to not to just not be aware of it yet Perhaps it's just um, illustrating the importance of doing this podcast, really, I guess, to try and raise awareness of people of of what it might look yeah. like and um, yeah. to have it in the back of their minds. Definitely. And I think as well, it's that thing where as health visitors, we mm. are completely able, if we have a case like this and we're concerned about whether the the local A&E would be the right one to go to, Mm-hmm. We can always Pick up contact the, the hospital switchboard, bleep yeah, the paediatric registrar and have a conversation with them. Because yeah. I think they see con- concerns from us 
as relevant as a referral from a GP. Yes, and we can have that conversation and actually they may end up saying, you know what, send them in, we'll make sure we review them. Yeah, that's a really good point. So perhaps that's a good um, kind of strategy then. If this is something that you're wondering about, it might be worth calling ahead actually to the hospital and saying, you know, I'm sending this family in um, and this is kind of what I was wanting to just give you the heads up on. Yeah, Um, I mean, obviously I'm a few years out of A&E, but I know that typically mm-hmm. in most hospitals they do not have dedicated paediatricians in the A&E department. No, no, so sure. it's not yeah, a case yeah, of phoning yeah. up the A&E department and saying you're sending this child in. It's a case of you know, bleeping the, the paediatric reg on call and having okay. a conversation with them. Or you know, at switchboard you can say, yeah, can I speak to the, the paediatric registrar who's covering A&E? Because mm-hmm. um, in some smaller hospitals it's going to be one person covering the wards and A&E. In some, they may have an A and E yeah. team, um, and a, a sort of a ward based team. So, yeah, so that's have a really that conversation. Tip. The wor- the worst they can say is, "Who on earth are you? I'm not talking to you," which <laughs> would be really rude and awful. Yeah, but sure, at yeah. least then you can then actually say, right, you know, it, you know, you can write them a, write a letter with and send them into the department. You know, yeah, I've tried to try to contact Pediatra regarding this. They weren't available, but I'd appreciate if. Um, yeah. And many A&Es do have the policy where, yeah, babies under a year old have to be reviewed by the paediatric team before mm-hmm. being discharged as well. So sure, um, there's lots of and safeguards and safety nets. Yeah. Um, when I was reading for this, that's actually a really useful tip and I guess um, something people can do if they've got a child they're worried about. Um, for all sorts of things I suppose but this might be a particularly relevant one just because of the speed that you really want um, this to be kind of assessed um, yeah well I think it's I think also it's a lot of confidence you know yeah you have the confidence oh, yeah, to go oh you know what I'm gonna call you know I'm gonna do yeah. this yeah and um, I think so many of us sometimes are fearful that we don't know what we're talking about and we're not confident mm. um, yeah but there's no harm in raising someone's awareness to an issue and you know any professional would be grateful for you having done that and would have no issue with you picking up the phone and and wanting to speak to them and you're totally right it is a confidence thing i think have a bit of um confidence in your clinical skills as well to say i know that this isn't a normal child movement you know exactly so i think it needs a review and you know you've got by the time you've listened to this episode obviously hopefully you'll have some kind of foundation in what you're talking about so it won't you know yeah hopefully that helps to give people confidence as well so i suppose should we talk about what it actually is a little bit we probably we've should kind of yeah, we've kind of drifted a little bit so amy what are infantile spasms so, infantile spasms are essentially short, subtle seizure movements. So, um, they can be as small as just a head nod, like just a drop of the head. They're very, very short. Typically, each seizure or each spasm lasts one or two seconds. And then there's usually a pause of several seconds, can be kind of 30 seconds or more. Um, and then a, another spasm. Um, they can happen singly, but they're more normal to happen in runs or clusters. So you might get yeah. kind of 
anything between five and 20 spasms in a cluster, they say. Um, Bless them. I know. Um, they do happen more frequently early in the morning or just after a nap, so they're quite frequently seen just after kind of waking up. Yeah. Um, but that's certainly not exclusive. You know, they can happen at any time. And the typical movement, I mean, what I would really encourage people to do is watch a load of YouTube videos of these. You know, yeah. all the big charities that I'm going to signpost towards um, on the resources section of the blurb of this podcast, they all have, um, you know, there are lots of videos produced by them, so produced by kind of reputable sources um, of children who are experiencing these spasms so that it gives you a real feel for the variety of what they look like, but also um, recognition. Yeah. When you start to see them, you start to recognise them more. Um, yeah. The more um, what I can watch. also do is but pop they... up a, a, link, a video on Instagram when mm. I oh, that's, do this yeah, good show as well. Add yeah. a link, add, add a... Add a second picture Great to idea. the post to show maybe a clip of the video as well. Great idea. But what it looks like, if you can imagine, um, it can often be confused with the morrow reflex. Yeah. Because it is that kind of trunk flexion um, or extension. So they're either crunching their tummy or kind of stretching their trunk out. Yeah. And at the same time, a kind of movement outwards and back inwards of their arms. Um, it can just be one side. Um, it's the typical, the typical classic example is squeezing of the tummy and stretching the legs, arms, and out. Yeah, so that's the kind of typical movement um, that you would see. Um, it's not just the movements that they look for. So obviously, the movements in those clusters is one major feature. Yeah. Um, another major feature of infantile spasms is the age at which the child develops. The condition so it's really about babies here so yeah. nine out of ten children with the condition the infantile spasms happen in the first year of life and the average is between three and eight months of age okay, okay. um although that's obviously an average so they have seen cases as young as one month or as Blimey. late as two years so there is a variation oh. but the vast vast majority happen in between kind of in the first year of life yeah. in that between that three and eight months and roughly how many children develop infantile spasms so um the prevalence is one in 2500 to 3000 children okay so that means in the UK, we get about 350 to 400 children a year developing uh, West syndrome or um, infantile spasms. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so the age, the time, the, t the age at which it, it starts, um, the seizure movements themselves, and also the third thing is kind of a change in um, development or a change in behaviour and patterns of things. So it's quite common, um, I read quite a lot of parent stories um, when I was reading for this episode, and um, a lot of those talked about a kind of change in their child's or their baby's behaviour. So quite common for babies to become irritable, go off their feeds, they might have sleep pattern changes, they might... Um, some parents describe the child's behaviour as if they can't see. So, like, as right. if they're having those brief periods of not being able to see and not being able to be aware of what's going on around them, I suppose. Um, they might have development plateau. 
or development slowing down or even seeming to go backwards so they have kind of regression in skills so they might have acquired a skill which they then don't do they don't then do again um obviously the kind of plateau and slowing in development is more likely if the spasms have been happening for a long time so the suggestion is that the spasm itself is um, a kind of chaos really of brain mm-hmm. activity and neurological activity and that that might be causing some significant damage in terms of um, brain development um, yeah. so they would it would really have some very very significant and it does really have some very significant impacts on the child um, yeah. some of which especially if it if it's a long time between when they first start and when they're controlled or if they're not able to be controlled so you can still get the chaotic brain activity outside of when those spasms are happening um yeah it still happens as outside of those actual spasms um and it can be seen on an eeg but behaviorally that's what that's interesting to physical spasm Um, yeah so that's interesting because i can imagine a lot of parents always worrying that if they were to get as far as having an eeg if the mm. child then doesn't have a spasm in that time that they will then miss out on the diagnosis and things that's actually right. quite reassuring to so, know that there is this abnormal activity there in between so, times as well yeah this so this is a bit of a thing as well that i did read about with um timing of eegs and you know whether the spasms are picked up and things like that um what i would say about that is it seems to be quite unarguable that the EEG of a child with infantile spasms will be abnormal. Um, it might not be abnormal all of the time, so it might be just abnormal when there's um, clusters of spasms going on. It might be abnormal in between clusters and when there's no visible spasms. Um, it might be abnormal during sleep only. So yeah. usually what they'll do is if they've got a normal EEG and the child was awake for it, they might do another one while the child's sleeping to test to see whether it's still normal during sleep. Um, yeah. And they might continue to do EEGs until they've managed to catch a spasm. Um, so what they often do is a video EEG where they're videoing the child and do, running the EEG at the same time so yeah. that they can correlate any kind of spasms or seizures that they catch on the video to match them up with any abnormal activity on the EEG so they're trying to really kind of catch out for that if the EEG appears normal during sleep and during a spasm then usually they will get a different diagnosis so that might be um, people might have heard of benign infantile myoclonus um, which are kind of um, look exactly like this but they haven't completely normal EEG um, and benign familial or non-familial seizures both of which present exactly the same but they they don't have any of the consequences of these um, and they're not they don't require any treatment right. um, so you would need the EEG so they're really the first thing yeah um, in in the line of the pathway for this child will be an EEG um, yeah I think for for a health visitor, probably the first thing you're going to suggest is for them to try and get a video of it if they possibly can. Yeah. Um, and go to A&E. And you would hope that when they're then in A&E, they would get that EEG. Um, yes. But yeah. Well. It looks very similar to lots of other things. So when you watch videos of them, they do look 
really similar to the Morrow reflex. Yeah. Or it might just look like a tick or a habit spasm. Yeah. Um, and certainly initially they're quite infrequent and they don't happen in clusters necessarily. So if you can imagine, I mean, this is literally one second or two seconds yeah. Yeah. in any yeah, child's entire day, possibly, you know, it would be very easy for the parent to miss and certainly for a health professional, you yeah. know, really, this is something exactly. the parent is likely to be drawing to your attention. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, if they were to do an EG quickly, it would be, they'd be looking at admitting because I don't think there's any way that yes, four sure. hours in A&E they would be able to get an EEG completed. Um, but yeah, the sure, no, I, I, yeah, I so don't. It's so tricky to get the video. I just more meant the pathway for that child. You know, the, mm. the pathway to diagnosis will start with an EEG, I suppose, is what yes. I'm saying. You can't diagnose yeah. it without one. Yeah. There's a typical disorganised no. pattern yeah. on the EEG that they describe called hips arrhythmia. Um, which yeah. is only seen in infantile spathoms. So if they do see this hips arrhythmia, that that is um, pretty conclusively shows an infantile spasm. And yeah. it's a particular set of EEG characteristics that I suppose someone who knows a lot more about EEGs than me would know about. But you don't have to have hips arrhythmia in order to get the <laughs> diagnosis. Um, but yeah, the other thing it's often misdiagnosed as apparently is um, colical reflux because yeah, of I the back arching kind of movements. Yeah, yeah. And quite a lot of babies cry at the same time as having the spasms. Yes. So yeah. it could look like pain, you know. Um, and yeah. Sandifer's syndrome that goes along with reflux, again, is has a oh, very similar okay. pattern of movements. Yeah. So, yeah, so... That's one of the really tricky things with this is there are a lot of differential diagnoses, um, most of which are more common than infantile spasms. Exactly. So you can see yeah. why this is often quite a long journey, really, to diagnosis for lots of these families. Definitely. Um, which is so such a shame, and I suppose that's the challenge, is balancing wanting to be alert to the rare whilst also not over alarming parents unnecessarily um but yeah with this you do need to to kind of prioritize treatment quite quickly yeah and it looks like quite a kind of there's quite i mean you said about the eg being needed but also looking at the needing sort of mri and ct scans to exclude mm -hmm. non-cancerous tumors which yeah so one of another... so yeah so the next step, so once they've had an EEG, the next step along the journey then for this child would be further tests and investigations. Um, if they've had a diagnosis of, um, of um, infantile spasms and West syndrome, they've started on treatment. Um, yeah. The treatment will be started very, very quickly after getting a diagnosis yeah. because they're wanting to get those spasms under control if they possibly, possibly can as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and then alongside that, whilst they're trying to get them under control, they will also be then doing additional tests and investigations to try and work out what the cause of the spasms are. And that's where the MRIs and the CT scans, they use a UV light to look at the skin Wow. Um, to look for tuberous sclerosis, which is one of the causes of um, infantile spasms. Yeah. They're going to do eye drops to examine the retina. They're going to do blood tests, urine tests, lumbar punctures for CSF. Um, because the underlying cause of the spasms um, 
is often important in determining the prognosis and the outlook for the child. Yeah. So um, that's why they're trying to get to the kind of... So, but yeah, they do go through the wars, these kids, bless them. Yeah, definitely. Especially when there are only tiny babies we're talking about, you know, poor little things. Yeah. And then treatment-wise, yeah. I re- recall um, them being treated with Vigabatrin when I was a newly qualified okay, staff nurse. Yeah. I think that was quite a new medication yeah. on the... Uh, on the the go for infantile spasms at that point. Yeah, and I think there's often a combination of treatments um that go on for it as well from what I've seen, although I haven't yeah. seen that personally in practice, but from what I've read, it seems yeah. to be what they're saying is a combination of treatments. And then if that initial treatment doesn't work, they would then look at other options to try and treat and manage them. So they'd look at other anti-epileptic drugs, um, perhaps a ketogenic diet... Oh wow, um, that's yeah. it's quite common with sort of a lot of fit related. Yeah, illnesses, isn't it? I think metabolic is it metabolic things? Yeah, have yeah, which something about the sugars and making mm. the body use ketones and that helps mm. to reduce the fits and things it's uh, okay probably another one for another week for us to look at yeah maybe yeah <laughs> i don't know much about it myself i mm. mean once it's i suppose from a health business perspective once they've got on to the point of getting a diagnosis obviously we're not going to be needing to be involved in the kind of treatment of it but i no. guess it's just nice to have a knowledge of what is usually offered so that you are then able to support the family yeah. because it's likely that these treatments do have quite significant side effects. You know, these are serious drugs they're talking about. Um, and certainly yeah. they're not given lightly. So, um, you know, families that are going through this might have reservations about that and that might be something that you might need to offer support around. Um, but yeah. it is very important to get the seizures under control as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then, you know, developmental delay, I suppose. So then subsequently, so they say they target um, two weeks of starting treatment to control the seizures within two weeks. And about 65 to 70% of children will have fully controlled spasms. Event, like they will reach yeah. a, a period, they will reach a, a level of control over them. Um, so they disappear yeah. or much, much reduced. Um. But I guess once that's kind of established, you're then, as a health visitor, going to be looking at consequences for that child um, and family. And they're going to be very personalised, obviously, based on the child, but may well involve some kind of developmental support. So if you've got a portage service locally, then referring to that, you know, you might need physio and salt, maybe. Um, yes. You know, if they're at that stage or um, salt are willing to kind of accept a referral at that age. And they might need support catching up developmentally once the seizures are under control as a possibility. Yeah. Which yeah, must well, be so imagine... difficult for parents, bless them. Well, it's that thing as well where these medicines are not going to be gentle, are they? To be able no. to control the seizures, there's going to be mm. other impacts. Mm, I can exactly. see it says in you know, the, some of the notes you pulled together about the parents reporting it can take time for the child to come back. Yeah. Which is just so... Uh, heartbreaking really yeah completely completely Mm. 
I mean, I think the emotional consequences of a diagnosis like this are, are huge, you know, for everybody. Yeah. Um, and as soon as parents start looking it up, which they obviously will do straight away and, yeah. you know, should do, I'm not saying that's not something yeah, that no. they should do, but um, when you read about this, it is very bleak and the prognosis can be very poor for these children. So um, there's a big range in outcomes and some children do do very well. Yeah. Um, and and do manage to recover with no kind of developmental in- impact, but a lot of children who have this syndrome um do go on um to have other childhood epilepsies um Lennox Gastaut syndrome yeah um fairly commonly they're also at higher risk of autism they often have learning difficulties kind of some kind of intellectual impairment as a result of um clusters with seizures obviously um so it does have it can have a very significant impact on on children yeah and obviously the longer they go undiagnosed and untreated yeah arguably the bigger um that impact is is likely to be yes um and also depending on the cause of the seizures in the first place yeah Um, so obviously if there's a cause that that has an impact on that the cause itself might be associated with developmental delay for example um or with other forms of epilepsy so yeah but i think yeah i mean i've not supported a family personally um as a health visitor who have had this diagnosis but i can just imagine it must be heartbreaking for them and it often comes out of nowhere you know and often associated with no other medical concerns prior so the first sign they'll get would be these clusters of seizures so i think can be quite frustrating if if perhaps they're given the brush off um early doors from professionals uh, which would be easy to see how you know if we've talked about the differential diagnosis and how it does look similar to a lot of things that are really very common and are not a worry it would be easy I think for professionals to want to reassure parents and not be kind Mm -hmm. of too alarmist in response to these types of things um so I can see that it would be met missed and it, it could be potentially quite a late diagnosis which could then have a big impact so I imagine that must be really upsetting for families as well in that scenario yeah how many times have we had it where parents have had a worry it's in the GP mm-hmm. been advised everything's all right and there's still mm. that niggle Niggling. still that thing yeah. that they're like they're not quite happy with this mm-hmm. and lo and behold it turns out that that niggle was correct we have to trust in parents, parents being the expert in their child that is so and true if something's not sitting right with them then the chances are it's something that we need to to consider and look into absolutely absolutely you're so right they teach you that in children's nursing don't they very early doors i remember that being a message very clearly kind of got across yeah Yeah. ignore the parents at your peril sort of thing um exactly exactly oh dear so oh, yeah, God, so, like so we, we need to have some sort of upside on this. I don't think there really is, there, although there does look like there is some amazing support available for parents. Really um, that amazing. We can link into. Um... Yes. So the main one that I found um, that I would really advocate anyone, like pretty much straight away, as soon as there's a diagnosis in place, if you had a family with this diagnosis, would be to get the family to look up the UK Infantile Spasms Trust. 
um, which is a parent group, and they have a really beautiful um, and actually quite lovely, inspiring um, website um, with lots of lovely stories and photos. It's a parent group of, of parents and children who have a diagnosis of infantile spasms or West syndrome, um, which, as I should have said, kind of to all intents and purposes is the same thing. There is a slight difference in terms of the EEG um but it's really detailed and i think for practical purposes it's the two terms are used interchangeably yeah. um so yeah all the parents and children on this on this trust um have got a diagnosis already and they have a closed facebook group um for oh, parents um, which is reportedly very supportive and lovely. Yeah. And it was a really lovely website. And I think some of the best um, information source as well for professionals. So they've oh. got an excellent um, information guide, um, some lovely videos on there. So that's a yeah. really good kind of source for parents and for, and for professionals. Brilliant. Um, but yeah. I think one thing I really got from that website that I thought was really relevant for health visitors if you have a child with this diagnosis on your caseload was really about kind of um, supporting the development and that might be and the emotional support for the family and that might be something the health visitor could really be helpful with um, supporting the development of that baby but you know not necessarily following an ASQ or anything like that kind of throwing out the expectations really and just celebrating the milestones enjoying that child and where they are actually at and and celebrating the milestones that they do achieve and breaking milestones down um as much as you need to really um to see progress um, yeah and really celebrating that progress with the family so for children where development has been a big problem who have this diagnosis that might be um, a place where health visitors can really make a big difference um, yeah. with the families. I could really see a role for a health visitor there. And very rewarding, I'm sure, and lovely. Yeah. No, exactly. It's that thing where when you're you're able to give that specialist support to a particular group, yeah. it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And really build a relationship with that family, hopefully, and and be able to be kind of alongside them in that journey yeah it's such a privilege isn't it it's the best bit <laughs> sounds like such a cliche saying that but it's true oh i know i know oh, so yeah. yeah so i hope that gives people a bit of an overview of infantile spasms or west syndrome so it's not something like i say it's not like to alarm everyone and not every video of an unusual movement that a parent shows you is going to be infantile spasms but Mm-mm. it's perhaps useful to have on your radar as this is a possibility, this is a thing that does happen occasionally. Um, you know, just to give you that little layer of caution um, and perhaps go and have a look. I'll link to the video. Um, there's one particular video from the UK Infantile Spasms Trust that I'm going to link, link to in the blurb from this podcast. So if you go and click on that video or just go to YouTube and look up um, Infantile Spasms. Um, and you'll mm-hmm. find videos from um, the Infantile Spasm Trust, Epilepsy Action, organisations like that. There's a couple of academic review articles that might be interesting for people. There's one that came out a review in 2020 that's quite useful. And then there's a kind of a classic article with the title Little Seizures, Big Consequences. 
think it's quite oh. a good summary um, yes. for people if they want to look up a clinical summary. So a bit of kind of further info for people who want to. Brilliant. You know, nine times out of ten, a parent is worried about unusual movements and we see the baby making the movement and we can reassure them it is the marrow yeah. reflex or it is maybe a little bit of reflux and things. Hmm. But it's so important to have a good knowledge of this um, for those that one case mm. in 10 or probably even closer to 100 or 1,000 mm. where there is something more going on, having that real confidence to be able to pick that up and say, oh, that's something against the norm mm. and being that one to stick your head out for it and things. Yeah, and actually, you know, sticking your head out and, and having it checked and then it turns out not to be, and it turns out to be reflux or to be a normal movement, I would still rather have checked that because the fact of the matter is that 90% of the time it will be a normal cause and it won't be a, a concern, but it's still worth it for the time that you do catch it because yeah, with this, you know, it's it's worth having a few kind of, false alarms really to catch the one that is genuinely there and I'm sure most parents would rather you're erring on the side of caution anyway and you know you can phrase it in that way it doesn't have to be yeah terrifying this is just something we need to rule out you just in case kind of thing um I don't know whether it's helpful to mention this stop did you see that yes s-t-o-p Yes, I did see that and thought that was really good. Sorry, I missed that we'd not gone over that. No, you didn't. No, you didn't miss it. It reminds reminds me of um, the fast for strokes. Yes, yeah. So it's just that thing of, and because, yeah, first thing you want to do is to stop and see the signs, take a video, obtain the diagnosis, prioritise treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's just so straightforward. Really I think people would do those, the, you know, a lot of people would do those first three things without even sort of being um, aware that they were doing them. I think it's quite mm. a natural mm. thing to do, isn't it? Mm. Certainly advising parents to take a video. If, if parents have noticed the signs, so parents have seen the signs, they come into you with them. If they've not already taken a video, trying to get them to encourage them to take one is a really useful thing for when they're then obtaining a diagnosis. Um, and then the treatment, the prioritising treatment is the P and that will come after that diagnosis very quickly. Yeah. So yeah, so that's hopefully... Cool. Well, I hope that's helped. Um, we're going to include lots of the links and things in the blurb and on Instagram as well and things. So yeah. have a look there. Mm-hmm. Um, for more info and remember you can always use this as part of your continuing professional development mm-hmm. um, by just you know, jotting down how long it took you to listen to the podcast reading up maybe one or two of the links that we send you and then you can do a reflection on how this is going to impact on your practice mm. um, and it's like yeah little steps like this that help revalidation become less scary yeah um, definitely yeah. <laughs> Or if we you did, can see revalidation looming. <laughs> yeah, we did like we I did an episode ages back on revalidation. We did. Um, which I think is still completely in date and things. I don't think oh, there's yeah, been yeah. any massive changes no. to the way we're revalidating. So it might be worth having a back, look back through the archives for <laughs> when me and Amy were mere slips of women 
<laughs> when Amy had smaller bags under her eyes. Oh. And a better time. A time of sleep. <laughs> oh, you're going to get sleep again at some point. Yeah, in like five can't... years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the meantime, well, yeah, Amy's still awake at night. Amy's gone for a nap. <laughs> time you can email us i am a health visitor at gmail.com or you can hit our social media channels we're on facebook um i am a health visitor is the name of our page um unsurprisingly and we're on instagram and twitter we're at i am a hv on both of those thanks so much for listening everyone in the meantime take care and we'll speak to you soon bye bye